0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone. So for the next book in this summer book club, I revisited a book that I've read several times over the years and it is called Around the Way Girl by Taraji P. Henson. More recently, I've seen a lot of her advocacy for the field of mental health, and she even started a foundation called the Boris L. Henson Foundation that is doing a lot of great work for mental health in communities of color. So I'm going to focus on two chapters in particular from her memoir. One chapter is called On Raising a Black Boy, and then the other chapter is on being a Black actress in Hollywood. They're very specific to the themes of racism and discrimination. To kind of jump in, it's no secret that young Black men are a target in our country, and being the parent of a black boy, Taraji talks about how they go from being super cute when they're babies and lovable to there's a shift where young black men become a threat to the outside world. So I'm going to start with this quote. When they get some length on those legs and those baby curls morph into a mass of naps, suddenly everything is new. Where once admirers saw cuteness, there is only threatening stereotypes and all that brightness that made those adorable little black boys irresistible is overshadowed by the dark cloud of assumptions, disdain, and yes, racism. This is neither speculation nor conjecture from an overly sensitive mom. It is verifiable, indisputable fact. Just a few years ago, headlines blared with news of three different studies that showed that black boys as young as 10 are mistaken as more than four years older, are more likely to face police violence if accused of a crime, and are often denied the assumption of innocence typically afforded children when they act like, well, children. It is how Tamir Rice, a baby-faced 12-year-old kid playing shoot-em-up games with a toy gun, can get gunned down by police within literally seconds of their arriving on the scene, with the shooting officer saying he thought the boy looked like a 20-year-old. It is how Trayvon Martin's killer can get away with claiming a skinny kid wearing a hoodie in the rain with Skittles and iced tea in his pockets was a threat. It is how 14-year-old Emmett Till could end up at the bottom of the Tallahatchie River, beaten, broken, gouged, and tied with a barbed wire to a cotton gin fan, and his killers could not only be acquitted of his murder, but go on to brag about how that child, quote, got what he deserved without any legal repercussion. In other words, our babies, our sons, get buried in an avalanche of low expectations, negative perceptions, oft-quoted statistics, and outright danger that denies them their basic humanity. And it is hard as hell as a mother of a black male to stand there with your baby in your arms, watching the clouds swarm and the sky turn gray, hearing that rumbling thunder, knowing that an immense Intense, never-ending storm of criticism, judgment, and outright abuse is about to rain down on your son's head. End quote. One of the privileges I've had in being a black male therapist is the opportunity to work with a lot of adolescent males of color who grew up in single-parent household situations, oftentimes with little involvement from their father. Given my own experiences with that, it feels good to be able to give back and to provide some sense of guidance to these young men as they're navigating through life. But as I think of that, that last quote that I shared covers a multitude of things that young Black men and, as a consequence, their parents are facing. And it's Sad, but true. I have to, I'm often having these conversations with young black men who are just, you know, being teenagers, doing the same things that their, you know, non-melanated counterparts are doing. However, I have to tell them, yes, you live in the suburbs. Yes, you go to the same schools with all of these people. However, you don't have the same privilege as These other people. And you being a normal teenager, if perceived the wrong way, can wind you up dead. And unfortunately, we have to have these conversations in order to protect young black men. So, an ongoing trend in the books that I've been sharing this summer is the understanding that racism is taught. The story I'm about to share from the book is a great example of how racism starts young and it is taught at home, and you'll see how this plays out. I'm picking up on a part where Taraji's son, Marcel, has just been denied the ability to play with some of his classmates, and you'll kind of see how that plays out. So, quote, what? I asked, my happy-to-see-you face quickly morphing into a furrowed brow. What happened that they said you couldn't play with them? He said it's because I'm black, Marcel said, just as pitiful as could be. But I don't understand, Mommy, because my shirt is green, my pants are blue, and my sneakers are white. He said what to you? Who said it? Show me, I demanded. Marcel pointed in the direction of the cubbies. At the end of the tip of his little finger was the boy, a Middle Eastern kid with a thick accent and and skin as brown, if not more so than Marcel's, and his mom, who was helping him gather his things. Wait right here, I told Marcel. Don't you move. I caught her in the parking lot, tucking her son in his car seat. Hey, let me speak to you for a minute, I said. I'm sure the fury in my eyes was the impetus for her to close the car door before she gave me her full attention. I let her have that, then confronted her head on. How dare you? I snarled. What are you teaching your son at home that he's bold enough to say something so foul to my son? I don't understand, she said. What did he do? What's going on? Your son told my son that he couldn't play with him because he's black, I said, seething. What are you teaching your child at home? Because I know this is not his fault. He's a five-year-old child. That's the kind of mess that gets taught to kids at home. She raised her palms in surrender, trying to interject, but I wasn't about to let her have at it. I was too disgusted to entertain explanations and excuses. My son would never say something like that. He's been taught to love and respect all people, no matter their color, and what I will not stand for is some child to refuse to give him the same respect on the playground. How is your son going to make my son feel left out anyway? They got the same color skin. I can't even begin to recount what she said back because I didn't give a damn about the words coming out of her mouth. I just wanted to make clear that there would be some hell in the city if her kid ever spoke to my kid like that again. Later, after we got home and unpacked his book bag and had a snack, I sat Marcel down and tried to explain to him in black and white the complicated technicolor of race baby you're cute right now and the world loves you but when you get bigger you're going to become a threat what do you mean mommy he asked all that innocence shining like a halo light around his head well there are people in the world who do not like other people because they're black and that's an awful thing because skin color shouldn't matter baby we like anybody who has a good heart and it's a good thing to let them play hide and seek with you no matter their color Marcel looked down at his hands and arms, and then back at me, seemingly more confused than he was before our talk. But my skin is brown, mommy. And it's beautiful, baby, I said, shaking my head and giving him a warm smile. Your skin is brown and beautiful. End quote. As I reflect on that story, two things come to mind. It kind of stirs up my experiences with racism growing up and racism in adulthood. And then I think of the numerous clients that I work with who attend schools or clubs or sports, and they face this kind of racism on a regular basis. I share this particular story because I think it's hard for folks who are not people of color to understand how pervasive racism and discrimination is in our society. There's a great number of people who think because we had a black president that racism is a thing of the past, but it's important to reflect on how these sorts of things happening to our young children through bullying and the modeling that's happening in society builds upon itself. And it contributes to self-esteem, issues and a slew of other issues. And I keep referring back to the review that I did on post-traumatic slave syndrome, but let's not forget how we have a long history of hundreds of years of being taught that we're less than and being treated as such. This country has a deeply ingrained history with it. And so understanding that we still have the aftershocks of all of these institutions is very important. So for the next quote, there is another type of stigma that she shares about. Taraji was a single mother, and like many Black single mothers, she faced a slew of opinions and assumptions from society. And so I'm going to share this part here with you. We mothers, the ones charged with the care and upkeep of Black boys, know the score. Black single moms are constantly beat up for our choice to have our children, but it is our boys who feel the impact of that blunt force. The blows come wrapped in a sledgehammer of statistics and pathology, with society tying our son's skin color and marital status of their mothers to a heavy weight of low expectations. It seems as though everybody is standing around waiting for our boys to prove that black boys— especially those raised by single moms, have a propensity for violence, are probable criminals, lack education, and are more likely to take illicit drugs, and are more likely to suffer from mental disorders, and on and on. From the moment the doctor smacked Marcel's butt and said, it's a boy, I knew I had to come primed and ready for the fight. I was never scared of the prospects, never bowed to the fear that comes with raising a black boy in a society that is prone to think the worst rather than the best of him. Instead, I steeled myself for the challenge. That's the armor I carried with me, the determination to prove every last one of those statistics wrong. I was blocking bullets aimed at my son's abilities, end quote. And so for the next two quotes that I'm going to get into it's going to be another example of how racism existed in school, except this one's coming from school administration. So the first example was how a peer inflicted racism on her son. Well, this time it's coming directly from the school. And she shares multiple examples of how this went down throughout her son's upbringing. And we must keep in mind, too, Taraji P. Henson is a famous actress, right? So it's not just public schools that she was sending her son to. These were private institutions that, you know, she was paying a lot of money for her child to go to. And that it's something to consider because some people will say, oh, well, that's because it's public school or whatever. Racism is across the board. It doesn't matter if you're in a public school in a low-income area or if you're in a prestigious private school. It's across the board. And I can attest to that as a therapist who literally works with teens and young adults across the socioeconomic spectrum. So here's this, this story here. Then I got that phone call from the teacher that would make me understand just what kind of danger my son was in. He was a preemie, so that might have something to do with his abilities, the teacher said nonchalantly one afternoon when I was called up to the school to talk about Marcel's yearly assessment. She actually suggested that my son wouldn't be able to test into a high-performing, private high school, and proposed that rather than let him graduate, I should approve leaving him back a year at her school. If we keep him back a year, he can catch up. Well, is he failing? I asked, my forehead pulsing with anger. I knew the answer, and whatever she was going to say didn't matter. I was too disgusted to bother hearing and digesting the words. I just wanted to see her fix her mouth to give me her reasoning for holding back a child who was passing all his classes. The very second sound came out of her mouth, I cut her off. You know what? It doesn't even matter what you say to me right now. I'll be taking my son out of this school. I said, Oh, what school do you have in mind for him, if you don't mind me asking? I ticked off a list of considerations and mentioned a private school that was looking to up its diversity and had a new coach who was recruiting players for the school's basketball team. That's where Marcel would go next, somewhere where he was wanted. Really, she said smugly, more like a statement than a question. Well, I don't know if that would be a good fit. He might not be up to the rigorous academic standards they have there. That's when I gathered up my purse and my jacket and pushed back my chair. I needed to get out of there before I caught a case, end quote. So moving into the next quote that I'm going to share, keep in mind the examples of conversations that I said I've been having with young Black men that I work with in therapy, that how they live under a different set of rules simply because of their Blackness. This is commonly phrased in the Black community as having the talk. It's not to talk about the birds and the bees. It's to talk about being black in this this country. So here we go. After my son's encounter at his school, blackness meant something to him too. He went on his own discovery, deep diving into books, scouring the internet, watching documentaries, giving himself a clear picture of our history and his place in it. And while he was fact-finding, I was talking to him. Giving him lessons on how to handle himself when faced with racism, both subtle and brash. Say yes, sir, and no, sir, if you're stopped by the cops, Marcel. No popping off at the mouth, I would tell him. And when these knuckleheads out here call you nigger, don't give them the power over you. You know what you are to them? A threat. Because you're intelligent, you're athletic, you stay in those books and you keep winning. It's killing them that you can come from all this adversity. No daddy, for a while there, no money. You have the power. Walk in that, and don't let anyone break your stride." End quote. I really enjoyed rereading this chapter because it, it's almost as if I can see an example of how parenting and advocating for one's child is done well, And I resonate with the part about how, after Marcel faced the racism from the school, trying to kind of hold him back, doing the deep dive into books, I think in my adulthood, reading books, and especially this summer, I'm doing it on super speed of, you know, diving into all of these books and learning as much as I can. It's so validating and encouraging to continue to seek truth. And I feel like a lot of these these books that I've been reading is a sense of therapy because I'm able to learn and heal and develop in ways that were never taught to me given my upbringing. So I think I can speak for a lot of folks in communities of color that we spend a lot of our adult lives unlearning what society has taught us. And for our non-melanated counterparts, I think that adulthood needs to be a process of unlearning as well. These systems and, you know, stereotypes have been inflicted on us almost on autopilot. It's up to us to change the narrative. So for the next part, I mentioned that Taraji P. Henson is an advocate for mental health. Her foundation was actually started in honor of her father, who dealt with mental health challenges throughout his life. And so in this passage here that I'm going to share, she talks about going to therapy with her son. So here we go. The impact of not having a father around came to a head in high school, when finally the questions, along with the anger, started flying. By then, he was asking outright, where was my dad? Where was he? It was a question that had been bubbling in his heart from as early as the eighth grade, but that I didn't realize until we found ourselves in joint therapy sessions trying to figure out the source of my son's anger and depression. In therapy, we had to walk through fire and it was painful. Accusations of my not being home with him full-time flew, and I was neither prepared nor willing to swallow that pill. I didn't have a choice, I yelled. This is what it is. These kids you're hanging around with, their moms don't work, and they're eating Snickers and Cheetos for breakfast. But you want to tell me what I'm not doing? I'm bringing home the bacon, cooking it despite working all these crazy hours, and making sure your ass is eating something besides Snickers and Cheetos. When I did have to be away from you, I made sure the next best substitute was there, my mother. Don't talk to me about what I didn't do. I threw in a few expletives so that he knew how very serious I was. In another session, I had to come clean to him on why his father and I broke up. That was a tough one. Until then, I kept to myself the details of his dad verbally abusing and hitting me because I didn't want to sully Marcel's image of him. But in therapy... It was clear he needed to know why we broke up so that he could begin the long road towards closure. The pain in his eyes and his rage in response to the revelation hurt me to my core. But why would he hit my mother, he yelled, punching the pillows decorating the therapist's office where we sat. Marcel, baby, you have to let this go, I reason, physically holding on my son to restrain and try to calm him down. You can't carry this hate in your heart. I'm sure that if your father had to do it again, he wouldn't have hit me. But he learned from it, and I did too. And you know not to ever do it, either. It was hard work, but therapy did wonders to help him, to help us, get healthy and get back on the good foot. Of course, it didn't solve all of our problems. And like adolescents everywhere, my son acted out in ways that got him into hot water with me, End quote. I always love a good example of how therapy was helpful to somebody, especially coming from a person of color, because as I've said time and time again, therapy is stigmatized in the Black community. And having a prominent person with a platform like this speak up on their experiences with therapy is so important because it normalizes it for people who have been conditioned to not consider it as an option. So I really appreciate that. So to wrap up the summary of the chapter on raising a black boy, I really like this quote. Raising Marcel has been a journey, one that I loved him through. With prayer, therapy, candid talk, and love, he came through on the other side. My son is smiling again, the life is back in his eyes. He's an aspiring rapper, producer, and music engineer with a keen sense of self, and he pours into his music all the memories, passion, and sentiment he has about his experiences growing up as a black male without a father, and the dynamics of being one of only a handful of black boys in an all-white school." So to transition into the chapter on being a black actress in Hollywood, I'm going to share one quote that does a great job at addressing the intersectionality between being a woman, but also being a woman of color. I'm going to link in this episode the interview that I did with Dr. Lakeisha Roney uh, about Black feminism. I highly recommend checking that one out for more context. So this example that Taraji gives is when she was in a starring role in the movie The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. She'll see the disparities that happen in Hollywood, especially when it comes to women compared to men, and add in the double whammy of also being black. It kind of speaks for itself. So, quote, but starring in a big budget Hollywood film opposite box office draws such as Pitt and Blanchett was supposed to come with an entirely different set of possibilities. A bigger budget, a wider audience, more publicity, critical responses that could open more doors for me as an actress, and Glory, a fatter paycheck. When the movie was released, most of this came to fruition. I'll cop to that. But the last item, the pay, never materialized. After I got word that I'd received the part, my manager, Vince, settled down to the business of negotiating my pay and quickly crashed into a veritable concrete wall of take-it-or-leave-it negotiations that left me juggling the equivalent of sofa change compared with what my co-stars received. Both Brad and Kate got millions. Me, with bated breath, I sat by the phone for hours, waiting for Vince to call and tell me the number that I would thought would make me feel good. Somewhere in the mid-six figures. No doubt a mere percentage of what Brad was bringing home to Angelina and their beautiful babies, but something worthy of a solid up-and-coming actress with a decent amount of critical acclaim for her work. Alas, that request was dead on arrival. I'm sorry Taraji. Raji, Vince said, when he finally connected. They came in at the lowest of six figures. I convinced them to add in a little more, but that's as high as they'd go. There was one other thing. I'd have to agree to pay my own location fees while filming in New Orleans, meaning three months of hotel expenses would be coming directly out of my pocket. Insult meet injury. Much ado was made when Forbes' 2015 annual list of the 10 highest paid actors and actresses hit newsstands, revealing the gross pay disparity between the genders. Collectively, the men stashed $431 million into their bank accounts, while women pulled in $218 million, about half that of their male counterparts, even though the top earning women were some of the movie industry heavy hitters with blockbuster projects on the screen. There's no reason that in the 21st century we should be having this discussion. But here we are, with women, not just us actresses, but all women, whether they run a Fortune 500 company or answer the phones at one, getting paid less than 70 cents for every dollar a man makes, even less if they're women of color, being a black woman in Hollywood comes with a unique set of challenges that can make comparisons of who made what according to gender feel like folly. end quote. So as I conclude this episode, I'm reflecting on how much can be taken away from the words of others, the stories of others, especially stories of color. And I consider it a privilege and an honor to be able to be diving into these things and to be sharing it with you. So thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for the next book in the Summer Book Club series. But until then, take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast, no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.